Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 210, How Purity Culture Affected Men. I can't wait for this conversation. Yeah, guys, welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast, where we talk about how the gospel is good news for every man and woman every day. We're coming at you from the lovely WCSG radio studio in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm your host, Lori Krieg, and I have via Zoom... So we might sound a little different if you guys just listen. Uh, my husband and favorite licensed therapist, Matt Krieg. Hey, Matt. Hey. I feel, I feel like you're like, how's the weather over there in England? I feel too all BBC correspondent. We don't usually have you in another spot, but he's actually with uh, one of our children who's not feeling great. But thanks so much for being with us via Zoom. We needed more guys to have this conversation with us. So thanks for making this happen, Matt. Mm-hmm. Excited to be here. And I also have, alongside me, another guy and my friend and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. Hey, Steve. Hey. Guys, we are today going to continue a conversation. We have not had a conversation with this particular guest yet, but we have begun the purity culture conversation. How, are we, how can we uh, take apart things from that, those decades that uh, are unhelpful? And is there anything we can distill down that we can take into the future? How can we talk about purity culture? But specifically today, we're going to talk about how it affected and still can have an effect on men. And to do this, we're inviting a new friend of the podcast to talk with us about it. And his name is Zachary Wagner. Zach, welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So to when get you, to uh, when you referenced when you referenced the weather in England at yeah. first, I thought you might have been talking about me because I am, in fact, as we speak, in England. <gasps> But, oh my goodness! Uh, so, wow. can you give us a weather update of that? Uh, it is about what you would think. It is. It is um, overcast and a little windy. Just That's... a tiny bit of rain this morning when Seems I was taking our yep. our kids to school. Um, but it is it is very uh, traditional English weather outside right now. Feels that way here too. Yeah. So we got to understand where you're from, more of what you're about. Can you help yes. us, Steve? So uh, Zach is a writer, researcher, ordained minister, thinker of thoughts, and feeler of feelings. Yeah. Uh, originally from the Chicago land area, he now lives in Oxford, England, where he's pursuing uh, DPhil, a PhD in New Testament studies at Keble College, University of Oxford. Uh, he also serves as the editorial director of the Center for pastor theologians where he co-hosts the cpt podcast that's awesome matt are you going to intro the the question of the week even from your uh correspondent spot <laughs> yes yes from the <laughs> lovely not basement studio of our house um yeah we want to get to know zach a little bit better and so we want to ask the question of the week from last time which is what time of day do you often look at the clock and it, because of that, perfect, perpetually feels like it is that time of day as a result. <laughs> I think I, I, I saw this in the email, and I'm not sure I immediately understand what the question is asking. Can you give it to me? Can you give it to me so uh, is, from a different is, angle, maybe? Yeah. Is there a time of day that you feel like you're always looking at the clock? You're like, oh, I need to look at the clock at this time. And it just happens to always be... Oh, like 915 in the morning when you've been with kids and feel like it should be the afternoon. (laughs) Got it. Okay. Thank you. Yes. I would say around 11 a.m. for some reason, I always feel like 
time gets stuck around 11 a.m. There it is. Um, mm. And I think part of that is because there's I split my day kind of in half um, when I'm doing my work and my writing and my reading and research for my Ph.D., I have a chunk of things I'm always trying to get done in the morning. It includes getting the kids out the door for school, working on various things. And then I take kind of a long lunch in the middle of the day where uh, I like to eat lunch as well as exercise in some way, also in the middle of the day. And for some reason, I feel like 11 a.m., both takes forever to get here and comes way too soon. (laughs) Um, And every day it's just like, I have this weird relationship with 11 AM because I like to (laughs) like cut my day off at that point to go take a break and go exercise and then eat lunch. And it can both not get here soon enough and takes forever to get here. Like, I don't know. So the, the disorientation you're describing around a time of day, the one that comes to mind is, is 11 AM. You answered the mm. question perfectly. That's yep. exactly what okay. I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, is it, yeah. no, that's that's great. It took me a second stuck. to kind of click, but I, I think I got it. <laughs> yeah, I liked this answer. <laughs> Can we play it? Yes. yes, this is my sister, and she's probably going to make fun of me. Let's go. Hi, this is Angela from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I have two small kids that keep me very active. So the time that I see very often on the clock is about 10.45 in the morning, expecting it to be at least 4.45, at <laughs> least, because of how tired I am. <laughs> and I love my kids, and I love spending time with them, but I am like, it's got to be late afternoon. It's got to be. And I'm like, what? It's still morning? Are you kidding me? So, you know real life that's that's my sister mm-hmm. and neighbor and i'm not kidding we'll sit in like her in her driveway so i'll just like walk down there and people will be like what are you guys doing i'm like literally waiting until it's time till it's four o'clock and i can make dinner <laughs> just <laughs> killing real life, time. guys kind of mm. sometimes it is steve which listener answer stood out to you uh, i appreciated this from facebook sarah said one of my roommates in college always liked twelve thirty four. One, two, three, four. So now I feel like I always see that time on the clock, mostly uh, when I'm up too late. So that would be 1234 a.m., I guess. That's awesome. So that was cute. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. (laughs) Matt, how about you? Yeah, I liked what Kimi said on Instagram uh, multiple times, though I long for kids' bedtime, which is around 8 p.m. Moral of the story is, guys, we love our kids, and also we need a break. (laughs) All right, let's pivot to the heart of the matter. Uh, Zach, we ask every guest this question. If the gospel is we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope, how is that gospel first good news for you, and how is it still? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. And I remember the way the gospel was first articulated to me as like a five-year-old or something like that was this ABC, admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And um, I've heard it confess, but I learned to choose, choose to invite Jesus into your heart or something like that. And I think by temperament, and a lot of people perhaps will relate to this, um, 
I didn't need a lot of help feeling like I was broken and bad. Mm. Um, like I kind of had that as a, as a default, um, feeling inside of me. Um, but I would say even coming into adulthood and including the, the journey around this book, um, and writing it, um, that you are more loved than you can possibly believe. Um, to me, that's the good news. The, the, the good news isn't, it's not good news that you're actually like more broken and sinful than you might think that's, that's bad news. Right. Um, so the, the good news is that despite whatever you do, um, the goodness that God has, um, announced over your life. And for me personally, the fact that God made me and despite my brokenness continues to love and and cherish me Hmm. um and my brokenness does not compromise his love for me um that's that's really really transformative it seems to me Mm. i feel that Mm -hmm. so the book you were referring to we got it right here mm-hmm. for those of you watching. Yep. Non-toxic masculinity, recovering healthy male sexuality. So toxic masculinity is something that we hear tossed around a lot. Uh, what would you, how would you define that? What is toxic masculinity? Yeah, there are a lot of different ways. It's one of these buzzwords that everyone kind of has their own idea, their own definition of what it means. And you can Google something and find out the way I define it in the book is it's a way of living as a man or living out your male embodiment in a way that dehumanizes either others or dehumanizes yourself. So it's a way of living as a man that dehumanizes self and or others. And um, what I'm trying to seize on there is the language of toxic Mm. We have associations with poison or death or illness or disease. And that is what I'm trying to capture with the dehumanization language. It's something that makes you less than yourself or less than the fully human um, person you were created to be or treats others or thinks about others in a similarly dehumanizing way that is not tending towards life, but tending towards uh, poison, death, brokenness. Hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. So with, with, with that kind of working definition of, you know, toxic masculinity and everything, where do you feel like that was, I don't know, cultivated, whether it's in our culture or just in human history? Like when did that become the predominant or, or kind of common masculinity that people talk about and see? Yeah. Well, there, I don't think there's one single way of being toxic in the world in this way that I've defined it. Uh, Something I talk about a little bit in the book is this idea, just the objective reality of embodied differences between men and women to generalize can be summarized that men tend to be larger and stronger than women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not to say that every man is stronger than every woman. Of course not. You know, we, all the, all the kind of qualifiers that we all get, we don't, but it's not a controversial thing to say that men in general are stronger and larger. And I think when you add to that, it's not it's not wrong or evil to be stronger and larger than another person. 
But when you add to that the brokenness and the bentness of sin, it puts men at a unique uh, advantage isn't quite the right word, but in certain in a certain way, but I describe it as a male embodied advantage, whereas men are in a position to leverage their physical strength, whether as individuals or as a collective to selfish ends. And the selfish ends are the ingredient that is added with sin. So um, I, not to be like too cliche or generic, but it is sin. It is mm-hmm. something that sin bends men to leverage their embodied differences in a way that harm others or their embodied advantages, you might say, in a way that harms harms others. And that's been manifested in various cultures in various ways all throughout human history. So, um, you know, you can give specifics, but I think we understand the ways that um, most societies are uh, patriarchal and have been in one way or another. And that often includes uh, a preference for what an individual man with a great deal of power or men as a collective would like to see happen in society because they are in a position to assert that in a way that women tend to not have the same access to. Hmm. So this uh, created difference bends in a toxic way because of sin. And uh, it is not wrong or evil to be a man. In fact, as Christians, we would want to strongly say that that could not be the case because um, all human beings are created in the image of God and created good. But I do think there's a unique way in which sin uh, affects and uh, gives certain temptations to men as individuals and as, as a group. Okay. So that makes sense. Toxic masculinity, it dehumanizes self and or others. And it, in its praxis, in its lived out mode, it's, it, men can leverage their strength to selfish ends. This is how we see toxicity. How does that relate to purity culture? Can you like kind of mm. give us a little overarching for people like, I don't even know what that is. Can you talk, what is purity culture? And then how does what you're talking about toxicity in for men specifically relate to purity culture? Sure. So purity culture, I define in the book as the theological perspectives, rhetorical strategies, discipleship resources, an entire slew of things um, created or articulated by uh, predominantly white evangelical Christians in the United States, although mm-hmm. certainly exported elsewhere, in response to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So purity culture is a subcultural movement in response to or reaction against a broader cultural movement, i.e. the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it really uh, you know, got going in the late 80s, really uh rose to prominence in the 90s with things like true love weights some people might remember yep and um somewhat unfairly sometimes but the poster boy of purity culture is often joshua harris uh who who wrote best-selling i kiss dating goodbye uh in the oh gosh um it's either like 99 or 2001 that book came out i i Mm -hmm. that's escaping me off the top of my head but sold over a million copies very very 
um, influential and popular book uh, to people who grew up in that time. Um, and then many other books and resources um, associated with this. And purity culture emphasized a couple things. It emphasized um, the kind of right context of sex being in a marriage between a man and a woman and um, also tended to emphasize the fact that holding off on quote unquote premarital sex was a way to maximize your future sexual fulfillment or yeah. get your best sex life in marriage. Yeah. Um, this was a very strong message that many young people received who grew up in the church. Not everybody, it's not uniform and people received it in different ways and to different extents. Some that perhaps were not really all that harmful or, uh, and others that I think a lot of people carry a lot of, a lot of baggage from, um, so it's it's a uh, strong emphasis on waiting until marriage, mm -hmm. um, a strong emphasis on, um, you know, God's plan for your romantic life or the best way to date or the biblical way to date, all these sorts of things. And now to get to the second part of your question on how this connects to men and toxic masculinity, really shot through lots of purity cultural resources and rhetoric are these assumptions about male identity yep. where men are viewed as being hypersexual or hypererotic or hyper quote unquote visual mm -hmm. in their just kind of orientation towards the world. So it perpetuates a, you might call it a script of masculinity or a vision of masculinity that is hypererotic, I mm. argue. And when Young, so a, a influential, very influential book on the male side of purity culture is the book Every Man's Battle. Yep. Um, which pretty much frames masculinity in these terms to say if you're a man or a boy and you find yourself distracted by the women around you or the girls, if they're dressed a certain way or someone's out jogging, all these sorts of things, and like that's not. These are the illustrations that the book uses. Yeah. That's just the way God made you. That's part of being male. Men more or less can't help but be distracted by or sexualized visually. Um, that's just the way it goes. And there's a lot of kind of um, really suspicious. Um, I'm not sure how charitable that is, but um, there, there's mm. certain kind of quote unquote scientific um, data used to back that up in in that book and other books uh similarly um but man uh that i think is a really unhelpful message to perpetuate to christian young men as they're thinking about what it means to be a godly man you kind of say well by default you're just going to be thinking about sex all the time and anyone you interact with you'll be I don't know if you're sexually attracted to them, you're like undressing them in their in your mind or something like that is the language that's sometimes used in this. And you can see here, as well-intentioned as these resources were, I fear that they sometimes created a self-fulfilling prophecy where a toxic version of masculinity from the broader culture, you know, the stereotype that men only think about one thing right, is in a 
subtle way, and this is how um, this is how the enemy works sometimes. In a subtle way, that message gets baptized and Christianized, hmm. and it's turned into this way that God made men, not something that men should mature out of mm. uh, or or learn to um, qualify and moderate and treat others as human beings, not as objects. So to get back to the dehumanization piece, of course, these ways of thinking about and talking about women, as I already said, it conceives of women as merely sex objects or potential sexual partners or sexual threats. Like she's trying to flirt with me or sleep with me, or why is she dressed that way? All of this sort of thing is objective objectifying women and dehumanizing them. But what I try to argue in the book, and I don't think this is talked about quite enough is it also reduces men to like sexual animals. Totally. um, Which makes them less than human. It doesn't set a bar very high for men in the way they mature into the, the an expression of their sexuality it actually just says well what can you do this is just what it's like to be a dude you're gonna be really you know the wind blows the right way and you're just thinking about sex and that's that you're kind of helpless and hopelessly bent that way because that's the way god created men and that can lead to a lot of problems i've talked for i've talked for a while on that question so i'll stop there and and uh invite you to respond yeah well i mean what i'm thinking about uh and i i'm relating with a lot of what you're saying and um have experienced you know a lot of the kind of effects of that of that culture and of that message would you be willing to talk about like how it personally affected you zach like what you know why, how, how did you get to this point of like realizing what you're now realizing? And was it, was it like a personal journey that you were on? Sure. Yeah. So generationally, I think a lot of young men who grew up in the church were receiving these types of message, this, this type of um, way of thinking about women or about sexuality that you might think of like a recovering sex addict as as describing this way. And we're articulating this vision of masculinity to like 10-year-old boys before they even hit puberty. And True. they're like, okay, this is what's coming down the line. Um, and that's certainly what was shaped for me. You know, I was reading these books. I was thinking about these things, rece- receiving these messages at various places um, before I even hit puberty. So I kind of like saw my sexuality kind of coming over the horizon as this terrifying thing. Mm. And this part of myself that was going to destroy me was extremely dangerous, could ruin my life, made my experience of God or my Christian faith a farce if I were to mess up in this way. And the other thing that purity culture did, again, well-intentioned, is it set this weirdly low bar for men, as I've already said, but it also set like a very high bar of like perfectionism for you need to be as pure, quote unquote, as you possibly can be for your future spouse or else you're, you know, the, you're a rose where all the petals have fallen off mm-hmm. or you're a, a, a piece of tape that's been stuck to too many things or you're a chewed up piece of gum. All of these like really horrific analogies, actually. <laughs> um, and I think, I think women got the worst of that in a certain way. Uh, but I think what men and certainly me personally internalized is the sense that my sexual desire is like this worst 
thing about me. Like wow. it's not a created good, even though you're taught that sex is a good thing. It's only good out there in some future marriage. My sexuality per se is not a good and beautiful uh, created part of me that God delights in. It's only something that God is kind of grossed out by and is wondering how long it's going to take for you to get your crap together before you can keep it in your pants, you know, until you get married or something (laughs) like that. And that um, for me and for many men that I've talked to, even in doing the interviews for this book led to cycles of shame and, um, Certainly with exposure to pornography, which was becoming much more easily accessible in the years when I was growing up through high speed Internet and smartphones and things like that. Um, I mean, smartphones were, I guess, a little down a little further down the line that would have been later in my life. But I mean, even so, these, these were creating huge challenges for young people um, around around this stuff. And then the second piece is um, purity culture, as I already said, held out this promise of a beautiful, fulfilling sex life and marriage. Mm. And now that many people who grew up hearing that message, it it, it provided, I should say, provided you wait until marriage, your sex life and marriage will be really great. Uh, A lot of young people who grew up hearing that message now are married. And even if they quote unquote, follow the rules as my uh, wife, Shelby and I more, um, not more or less, we did like we were virgins on our wedding night and, um, you know, we weren't perfect by any means, but you know, we got, we, 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 we made it and uh, have found uh, in the early years of our marriage, we had found that that part of our relationship was more characterized that by struggle and frustration and continuing cycles of shame. Um, than it was by this kind of joy and freedom and uh uh easy flow of intimacy um that we were hoping for and had been led to expect in a certain way um and that leads to a unique confusion and frustration where you're like okay did i did i do something wrong um or did i not follow the rules well enough or is there something wrong with me mm-hmm. Um, and that can be experienced on both sides of the equation in mm-hmm. various ways in a in a marriage. And um, yeah, I, I think um, purity culture was overly formulaic in its way of thinking about human sexuality and about relationships, where it's just do this and this and this and you'll get a good result. Yeah. But that's just not how life works in a broken world. And something I talk about in the book is um, two pieces of that. One was kind of my... Um, continuing cycles of shame around my sexuality and my that that kind of wound and weight that I was carrying there. And then for my wife, and she's very open about this and gives me consent to to share in this way here and in the book, she's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, oh, uh, yeah. church-based childhood sexual abuse. And um, we didn't really grasp that and understand that early in our marriage. It, w- it took us a while to kind of put some of those pieces together, but that's a huge piece. And it huge. it wasn't something that she chose um but nevertheless it was a a burden and a weight that she brought into the marriage um that uh the purity culture kind of narrative didn't didn't often account for so matt and i are just gonna go have a little weep fest in uh relating Mm. to y'all uh but matt i know you're you've got probably 25 burning questions and many client (laughs) stories so go for whatever you want to ask yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad you brought up kind of the the the, the porn piece because so yeah. much of I mean, I work with clients who are not from a Christian background at all, 
And I mean, there is this rhetoric where, um, you know, if I'm working with a couple and the guy is literally saying to me, well, as a man, I have to look at half naked girls on TikTok or whatever, because that's what men do. And like, that Mm. is some of the sexual revolution message that, that kind of animalistic man. Um, And then coupled with the, the, the purity culture, which inadvertently does dehumanize women, that all relationships between men and women have to have this sexual component, mm. you know, and are either a danger or, you know, everything you said that that, that is the primary drive um, is just, I guess, with that dehumanization, have, have you seen or have you experienced or how have you like shifted your mind? Yeah. You know, to to approach relationships specifically with with women in, mm-hmm. in a way that is not as this like animalistic consumer, but sure. much more in a like human to human creative producer of maybe something good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love what you said. And I think it's so important for these conversations is the way I think through the sexual revolution and through the way Christianity in purity culture adopted some of the harmful messages of the sexual revolution, which is this eroticizing of all relationships Mm. where it's not that there's potential for men and women to partner in a sex in an, a sexual union. It's kind of like, that's the sum total of what it means for a man and a woman to be in relationships. So if there's not, not potential for, a sexual partnership or a marriage, then why bother being friends with that person? And this is strangely a very pornified view of relationships. Mm. You know, there aren't, there aren't extras in pornography. Everybody is there for a sexual encounter. Uh, There aren't built out relationships outside of the sexual encounter encounter and pornography. Everything is kind of eroticized and made into the sum total of what it means to be in, to be human and to be in relationship with another person is this erotic moment Mm. um, or this erotic experience. And that's just a terribly narrow view of human relationships. And um, so that's just to kind of agree with what you're saying. And I think for me, learning through some work with a good therapist to understand my sexuality as one, a good part of me, something that's not just every time I experience sexual desire or um, sexual gratification or something like that. It's not something terrible about me. Number one. Um, So learning to like bless that part of myself, that was something that I really struggled to do. Mm. Number two was, learning that that was actually in fact just a part of myself not the sum total of what it means to be human or what it means to be a man and i think um yeah in this purity culture narrative that i re- had received as well as this kind of this is just what men do which in a weird way you can kind of adopt even within the context of purity culture if you're struggling with watching porn or you find your you're compulsively acting out that way. There are different dynamics and stigmas for women who have that struggle. But for men, there can be this rut that you get into where you're like, well, this is just what it means to be a guy. I'm just, you know, following my programming. And um, I think we don't want to encourage that thinking in Christian men. Um, We want to, and Christian boys for that matter, we want to say, if you 
if you find yourself experiencing your sexuality as this kind of overwhelming thing that you can't control, that's fine in a way, but like, let's move beyond that. That's not what it means to be a man. That's not what it means to be human. Um, so starting to question some of those categories and fight back against the vision of myself as this kind of out of control sexual animal, just bit by bit. That's a long process. Number one, number two is, um, I talk about in the book, there was this really formative experience where, um, my wife and I, we shared a home with two women who were peers of ours, two single women. Um, we had an extra bedroom. They were looking for somewhere to stay. And we ended up saying like, oh, well, you can crash with us for a little bit. And it ended up becoming this thing where they live with us for two years. And this wasn't like a kind of like charity arrangement sort of thing where it's like, oh, they're down on their luck. Why don't we bring them in sort of thing? It was actually a a, a blended kind of family type situation where, you know, I was I was in a house at the time of with four other women one of whom was my wife, one of whom was my one-year-old daughter, and then two other women who were my wife and I's age and peers, um, but were, I don't want to say just friends, as in they, you know, one was my wife and the other were just friends. I suppose that's a fair, fair distinction. But all of us were brothers and sisters in that community. yeah, And it created a really beautiful context. And this was at this point in that healing journey where for me um i found that it wasn't like weird and it wasn't this like struggle and it wasn't this dangerous thing mm -hmm. for me to be in relationship with women it felt extremely and i wasn't even afraid of those things i found it was just this beautiful thing uh living with people that i enjoyed and wanted to be in relationship with and um you know people expressed concern about that and I'm not saying, you know, throw any boundaries and relationship or living situations to the wind. Of course, there are things that can happen. But I think um, oftentimes purity culture had a tendency to over legislate boundaries mm. um, in a way that actually perpetuates this hypersexualization of relationships on the one hand and also um, keeps us keeps us locked out of authentic relationships with men and women, which as we all know, is so crucial for living life and healing and all sorts of things. You can't, you can't live life with only superficial relationships, um, much less with uh, relationships with the opposite sex. Well, and it's the antithesis of the kingdom of God. Like I'm correct <clears throat> in a church class right now. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like this is, this is how God has designed it for us to be brothers and sisters advancing this kingdom of God thing. And so it's funny yes. how something well-meaning, yeah, turned men into animals, women into objects, and really the enemy used a, a decent amount to... Well, and I mean, yeah. dangerous objects. Yeah. If if Correct. men want to live holy lives, you know? Yeah. It's, it, mm -hmm. the, the, the message is you're messing with my discipleship. Which that's versus, enmity between the man and the woman. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's the OG issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can you, though, you alluded to this earlier, and I just know it was pounded into my head, like, mm. a lot from my uh, church community, was every man's battle, they are more visual. So how do right. you look at that science, or is it more air quote science, of men are more visual, and, and may, can you just talk about it one more time? Sure, yeah. So 
Um, there's a, there are in my book, I make reference to the work of, um, Sheila Gregoire yeah. and her team in the great sex rescue. And they do some work on this and debunk some of it to some extent. Here's the thing. There are in fact, scientific studies and i'm just not qualified to evaluate them one way or the other that's kind of why i allude to sheila gregoire and her team they're in Mm -hmm. a better position to uh to assess this than i am it's not my expertise um and uh but one important point that they make is that it just doesn't track that women aren't visual which i think is the other side of that equation oftentimes Mm -hmm. is that men are visual and women aren't and it can be scientifically demonstrated that women are visual too and often have the same types of visual associations with eroticism and things like that that we associate with men oftentimes but here's what i do want to say is that i kind of well two things i kind of don't care what the science says in the sense that it's not like oh well it's irrelevant what kind of biological differences there are between men and women of course of course that's something that we can get curious about and can think through what i get really nervous about is the way this gets hammered into as you were saying Lori, not just men's heads but Mm -hmm. women's heads Mm -hmm. and it then becomes license for men to lust after and eroticize women in the way they view and think about them right and it becomes expectation on the women's side that men are treating me this way or thinking about me this way and it then becomes my responsibility to make sure that they're not mentally engaging me in a violent way or physically engaging me in a violent or coercive way or whatever the case may be it just puts all that there so it's not really like a moral statement it's yeah. just a kind of moral shrug I, su- I suppose is how it comes across and it's like well men are visual what can you do exactly and it just throws a wrench into all sorts of things um that's number one number two and i guess i already alluded to this a little bit is that the every man's in front of that yeah is really really problematic it seems to me mm. um because it may be the case, and again, I'm not making a claim in this way. I just am not qualified to contest the claim that men tend to think about sex more or men tend to visualize having sex more or something like that. Um, but that is not true of all men. Mm-hmm. And it may, in fact, be true of some women that they feel that they are more easily visually stimulated than or think about sex more than the women around them or even their partner in marriage um and that can create this script where if a woman if a woman then desires sex or finds she's visually stimulated in in a certain way she feels like she's fulfilling the man's role or acting in an unfeminine way and it is not it is not male to be sexual it is human to be sexual and for every man you could point to and be like well that guy is very visual not that you can point to this sort of thing but Mm -hmm. um you would also be able to produce an example of a woman 
who is perhaps even more visual than that guy or whatever the case may be. So it's just a kind of, um, I I'm trying to disentangle and dismantle that, that framing of it a little bit, because I just don't see what good it does us Mm -mm. other than lower the bar for men, raise the bar in a kind of unfair way for women. Right. And make them responsible for men's sins and men's compulsion. Well, I don't think we should be telling young men like, hey, you're visual. This is just kind of how it goes. You should be like, hey, if you find yourself visually um, sinning against other people, you need to stop treating them like objects and start treating them like humans. And it's not wrong to notice that someone is attractive. It's not wrong to even experience sexual arousal uh in certain contexts or it you know it's it's it those aren't bad things about you but you are responsible for what you do with those feelings and those those stimuli uh that's where the moral framework comes in um and that's just not the way the discussion went so often (laughs) um so yeah there talk talked about it a little more thank you i appreciate that (laughs) and i just to restate for the women in the room listening uh it does it both turns us into police the policeman for men they're the they're they can't help themselves and again i'm not saying this is true this is how it came out we're both the police and we're perpetually need to get used to being the victim and then men are a victim to themselves so i love how you restated and you said nope the responsibility is on the man and the yep. woman, you are neither the victim nor the, you can be a victim, but you don't have to be perpetually the victim and the police. You're responsible for you. And we're mm-hmm. all interdependent. What you got, Steve? Well, I mean, it's so much. I, I feel like we're, we're pressed for time. I yeah. wish that this could be a three-hour podcast yep. um, because I'm thinking about, I'm a little bit on the older end of us. Uh, and I'm, I, I hope that maybe there's a guy uh, roughly my age listening to this podcast and maybe who had a similar experience to me during that sexual revolution and kind of like the emergence of, you know, the pornography that's now proliferated the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. There was silence. And, you know, again, this was like fundamental evangelical, you know, bubble. Um, there was silence on sexuality. And so we were left to figure things out. And I think yep. maybe my generation grew up and and went through what it took to recover from that and said, okay, we're not going to be silent. Our mm. kids are going to hear Correct. about this. We're going to talk about this. And we pendulum swung to the other extreme, which yep. we now call purity culture, yeah. because we took some of the the messages we picked up from the sexual revolution and, and, and porn culture and, and believed it and spoke yes. to that in a, like you said, in a kind of like an attempt to sanctify it and Christianize it. And so we're at least going to have this conversation. So I guess my question is um, how can we have the conversation? Cause mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. How can we talk to our, our kids and our sons, especially about, yeah purity mm-hmm. and masculinity or, or sexual integrity, however you want to say it, like how do we sure. have the conversation without all the bad stuff we borrowed from the sexual revolution? Yeah, this is what I try to do in the second half of the book where I have this, this narrative that I trace chapter by chapter through different stages of a man's life, starting from childhood up to adolescence to adulthood to to dating marriage and um i actually end uh the last chapter is entitled death and resurrection Mm. um 
And what I'm trying to do there is situate um, our humanity and our sexuality in a in a salvation historical frame, a more redemptive frame. And I don't think the gospel actually had a whole lot to do with purity culture. It, it and it's actually very anti-gospel in certain ways because it creates this very high, you know, quote unquote legalistic bar that feels impossible to meet sometimes where you're somehow supposed to have like arrive at your wedding night, having like never felt a sexual feeling or thought a sexual thought. Um, and then somehow that will not cause more problems right. Right. Uh, potentially once you, once you get there. Um, so uh, the only way the gospel was made relevant in purity culture oftentimes to our sexuality is it was a way that our sexual sins could be forgiven mm-hmm. which of course is true and it's wonderful that that's true but um what i try to do is c- connect our sexuality to other points of the entire sweep of the story of salvation including the incarnation first of all so for men in particular um There's something really powerful, and for women as well, in a different way, I suppose, but there's something really powerful to realizing and sitting with the realization that God the Son became a human being just like us, sexuality included. And uh, to think that Jesus was somehow like neutered or never experienced sexual feelings or sexual desire or anything like that, Mm -hmm. that's actually flirting with an early church heresy known as docetism hmm. which takes the view that jesus does it wasn't actually human he just kind of looked like he was human it was kind of a, 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 a he, he appeared or seemed to be human but the church tradition has said strongly no he was fully human as well as fully god hmm. and that has implications for our sexuality because i think it shows that Jesus, you know, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted and tried in every way as we are, yet did not sin. So there, it is, in fact, possible by the Spirit, we are empowered by the same Spirit that empowered Jesus during his earthly ministry, to live lives of, you know, the classical virtue of chastity or of sexual integrity, perhaps, to update the the language a little bit. That is possible. Number one. Number two, yes, the death of Jesus on the cross means that our sexual sins can be forgiven, but the resurrection is really relevant here too, because we with Christ are raised to new life. And because of the resurrection, the good news of the gospel is that there's a new way to be human. So this goes back to everything we've been saying about purity culture and toxic masculinity, and even men being visual, what we were just talking about. That's if there's an old order of humanity, an old order of maleness and masculinity, an old script of masculinity where we're kind of helplessly enslaved to our sinful desires, in Christ, there really is now a new way to be human, which means there's a new way to be male. And these are the kind of theological substructures of the Christian story as it relates to our humanity and our sexuality that I think were just not even talked about so oftentimes. And I think these are transformative truths um, that we can start to teach um, boys at a young age and say that there is a 
perhaps as they're growing into their sexuality, a certain immaturity and certain struggles that they may feel. And that, yes, that includes sinning. But the Christian story is a story of growing up and growing up into Christ. And uh, Ephesians 2.15 talks about um, speaking the truth in love. Let us grow up into Christ Mm -hmm. in all things. Um, He who is our head. So there's this imitation thing, but there's also a transformative element to it. And um, creating a narrative, replacing the purity paradigm where you need to stay perfect and if you mess up it's all ruined which is anti-gospel by the way um and replacing it with a paradigm of growing up into christ so telling young men hey you're going to be feeling new stuff in your body you're going to be noticing things in the world you're going to be noticing yourself feeling things about those things in the world having desires for relationships and connection and oneness with beautiful things and people and all of this that's like driving a car you know, you might have some bumps and and scrapes along the way, but the goal is not to like never scrape the car necessarily. It's actually a longer term goal of growing up and using. I'm I'm developing. I'm this analogy more than I have in the past, but finding a way to use the car that actually serves the things that you're trying to do with it and others and the way with the things that the car was intended for. And um, the car then becomes a beautiful way of, I don't know, I don't know how well this is working. We got it, we got it. There's a, yeah, yeah, it becomes, I I don't want to say our sexuality is a tool, Mm -hmm. um, but in the analogy, the car is is something that can be very dangerous. Mm. And I think this is what purity culture got right, Yeah, is that there are, it can be severe consequences for some of our sexual choices and foolish mistakes and sins and all that sort of thing. That's not that that's not an idle threat. That's a very real thing. Um, but there is a beautiful and mature way to live into this that doesn't need to fall into this purity paradigm and can uh, relate to various parts of the story of salvation in the gospel. Man, thank you for restating that into the greater gospel narrative, because you're right. We have just r- copy pasted Phariseeism. Um, and retribution theology and basically karma. You do good, you get good. Mm. You do bad, you mm-hmm. get bad, which mm. is not taking the whole gospel of grace into consideration. Uh, so thank you, man. I, I know all of us probably have 10 more questions uh, we could ask you, but guys, if you too listening have more questions, go grab this book, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality by Zach Wagner. Uh, we recommend it. And uh, we'll also put some links in the, our show notes to follow and maybe continue the conversation with Zach on the internet. But Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. So I know this was so good for our marriage, wasn't it, Matt? We need to have a good chat tonight, didn't we? <laughs> I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Anything stand out, especially to you, Matt? Um, I mean, I, I think that just the, the the fact that purity culture and kind of the pornified culture both had these like same effects from opposite ends of the the dehumanization of women, the dehumanization of men. Yeah. Um, 
kind of creating this like and i wish we could have gotten into it a little more like the sexual entitlement that Mm. that can come inside marriage the purity culture was like hey don't 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 and then once you're in marriage like you have to um and and just which further kind of reinforces that dehumanization and and everything and so i just to, to have the hope that hey we we can we can relate to people in in a very god honoring way that that isn't just solely focused on this one aspect that is potential in a relationship. Mm. That's good, Matt. Mm. Steve. Yeah, there's so much. I think um, just one thing that wasn't said overtly; it was implied. Um, he, um, Zach used the the term uh, sexual desire a number mm. of times, but the way he was using that term i was like oh you mean what we've always called sexual temptation oh snap you know so it it puts this negative charge on it where he's just like sexual desire it just is we're sexual beings it's there and you know and and so I, i guess what i would add to that is yes this can become temptation it can become sin but it just starts out as just a part of our humanity that's good and steve i did appreciate your like historical reflection (laughs) i feel bad using the word historical but that was actually a really helpful ad Mm. i'm sure people uh, appreciated it i wrote down as like a note just like how to talk with my son so who's four and i've been honestly feeling pretty paralyzed because i can engage my girls who are a little bit older in this space at this level but i just want to learn so much because i don't want to swing the pendulum Mm-hmm. And I don't want to repeat the sins of our forefathers. So, guys, what did you think? Feel free to email us at podcast at com or follow us on the socials. Send me a message. You guys can feel embarrassed sometimes being like, I'm sure you get too many messages. We don't. We love hearing from you guys. It's we we really it's really encouraging when we engage this space. We do have a question of the week. Speaking of hearing from you guys, uh, this is a pretty basic one. What's your go-to TV genre? Home Reno, Marvel, Sci-Fi, BBC World Service, <laughs> <laughs> Mysteries. Uh, but guys, if you want to uh, join the conversation, including answering that question of the week, you can find us at um, Facebook to search Hold My Heart Podcast. Thank you uh, again to our guest, Zachary Wagner. Thank you to WCSG, the Zach of all trades, is intern Delaney. And for all of us here at the Hold My Heart Podcast, we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.